Yeah, happy Father's Day. Um, if uh, some of you young fathers have not yet realized, this fellowship is filled with fathers who uh, have been doing fatherhood for a very long time, have done a fine job, and can serve as a counselor, uh, mentor, uh, advisor, encourager, and a host of other things. Um, the, the, the way that the people that God has brought here to Calvary Chapel uh, is a, an, an answer to prayer to Shandy and myself when we <clears throat> came out here and left Wyoming. We wanted to be surrounded by families that had done family for a long time, had been very intentional, and had good results. And uh, so God is faithful, and uh, he has brought this fellowship together not just for my sake, and, uh, but for the sake of so many other people. So young dads, um, be wise and take advantage of the resources that God has given you uh, here in this fellowship. So thank you to all those dads uh, that have mentored me, have encouraged me, have rebuked me, and, uh, and just served me in so many ways. And so appreciate you guys, yeah. All right, well. Matthew 7, 12. I don't typically do Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons. Uh, it just doesn't come in the text of my scripture. Uh, not that dads and moms aren't important. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. And, uh, but uh, I, I'd like to stick to the text, if that's okay. We are in Matthew chapter 7 still. And as you can see on the screen, we are going to get a really long ways today. Um, So if you would, join me in standing for this very long reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your instruction. And uh, though there's only a few words in the sentence, uh, you're the one that said that this is all the law and the prophets. So therefore there's a ton packed into this little piece of instruction. And I just pray that you would use it this morning to remind us afresh to uh, look through this lens as we engage with people around us. So Lord, thank you, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. How many of you guys have used this in the instruction of your children in regard to their treatment of their siblings? How did it work? How many of you found that this is applicable in your marriage? Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, or uh, to your neighbor um, who, you know, isn't very neighborly? <clears throat> I never realized how important neighbors were until I moved here. And, uh, and it never occurred to me until I got nervous about a neighbor who sold their house. And then I realized that I have no idea who was coming into the house after that. And, uh, but praise God, our immediate neighbors uh, are wonderful. But neighbors. And this is all about neighbors, isn't it? So let's, uh, let's get it up here properly. Is that right? 
Is it playing properly? No. There. Very nice. So yeah, uh, we're all familiar with the truth. Uh, We're all familiar with kind of the force of this saying. And the interesting thing is, is we're all familiar with it, even if this is your first time being in a church and exposed to the text. Do you know that? Yes, it's been communicated to you in one way or another, and uh, your conscience also affirms what is stated here. Uh, As kind of a social experiment, uh, as I'm uh, reaching out and doing evangelism, sharing the faith, especially with children and teenagers who have never been to church and they know nothing of the Bible. I love to engage with people in this, this whole regard. I ask them to give me a few examples of what they know they should not do and what they know they should do in, in a moral context. How do you think they answer? Exactly the way I want them to. Because <laughs> I know what they're made of. I know that they're just like me. Because they're created in the image of God, they have an intuitive sense of what they should and should not do. They know right from wrong and they know that they should do what is right. They know that they should avoid the wrong. And so when they give me a few examples, they answer like everyone else does. They repeat to me the most fundamental aspects of morality as they're implied in what Jesus is saying here. How many of you guys have read Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis? Yeah, this is the very point that C.S. Lewis makes. If you want to uh, see it made on a more contemporary, uh, in a more contemporary way, uh, there's a book called Moral Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. It's from Greg Kokel and Francis Beckwith. Uh, great book, uh, demonstrating the same exact reality that people They just know intuitively because God has uh, created them in his image. They're moral creatures, moral creatures. As you know, uh, Jesus' instruction has been called the golden rule, which indicates, of course, that it's the most important rule for life, at least when it comes to our responsibility to our fellow man, to other people, okay? Uh, Ancient philosophers and religious teachers across the world have given almost verbatim uh, the the exact same instruction that is given here, and the vast majority of those people had no knowledge of the Bible. How did they do that? How did that happen? People from India, people from China, people from all over the world, but because they're created in the image of God, we should, we would expect this. In fact, when Paul was in Lystra, the city of Lystra, and then when he was in Athens, uh, Greece, uh, two thoroughly pagan cities, he he was actually depending on this very truth when he was preaching the gospel. And it's his example, actually, uh, that I've drawn from of why I preach the gospel in a certain way to people that have no biblical knowledge. So if they're Hindu without any biblical knowledge, if they're uh, a Buddhist without any biblical knowledge, It doesn't matter to me. I approach them uh, in this manner, and I learned it from uh, Paul, who I kind of think was an authority on preaching the gospel. But he he depended on this truth when he preached the gospel, uh, that it would prick the conscience. You see, if man had no intuitive uh, moral responsibility, there would be nothing to hold him accountable to. It would be like talking to an animal. But because he's a moral creature... He's morally accountable. He knows 
what he ought, he knows what he ought not to do, and therefore we can hold him to account, just as Paul did uh, in those very cities. Now, uh, you may have heard, um, and I'm not bashing any pastor that has said this, but as J. Vernon McGee has often said, uh, pastors are lazy. And uh, they don't always do their research, and they've made this big point out of uh, how Jesus stated the golden rule versus how others have stated it in the past, philosophers and moral teachers. They point out that Jesus has stated his instruction here in the positive and proactive sense, while others stated it in the negative and the passive sense. So Jesus, of course, said, do to others what you would want them to do to you. Others say, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Now, of course, uh, they're stated differently, but they imply the same thing. But also, it's not actually true that everyone else stated this in the negative sense. For example, Confucius was quoted as saying, this is the sum of all true righteousness. Treat others as you would yourself be treated. Is that stated in the positive, in the proactive? It is. Yeah, it's nearly identical. It has the exact same sense. Okay, so how could he or, uh, I don't know why spiders are always on my pulpit. It's BJ, it's the worship team. (laughs) Trying to get me. How could he Uh, And if he did not say that, how could the ancient person who quoted him know such profound truths without their Bible? It's pretty simple. As we've said, it's the same way everyone else does. Consider Paul's words. He says in Romans 2, 14 through 15, for when Gentiles, and Confucius was a Gentile, he says, who do not have the law, that's speaking of the law of God and Exodus, he says, by nature, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. It's a lot of insight for a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. The Gentiles are non-Jews, and the Gentile world, as we know from history, of course, more recently, They do have the word of God. The the Bible's been translated in nearly every language in the world. It's been distributed. But before the advent of the printing press, uh, before the advent of of actually Christ and the synagogue when the, the scriptures were at least going out into the Gentile world, but they still weren't circulated among the Gentiles. It was confined to the, the synagogue. It was confined, you know, to the churches. But... The Gentile world did not have the law of God as it is written in the Bible, but they've always had the most fundamental principles of the law written in their hearts, and it's confirmed in their conscience. Have you ever had your conscience bother you? Well, it's not only because you have, you're familiar with the scriptures, it's because of your conscience. And then if you're born again, uh, you have a conscience on steroids because of the Holy Spirit. Okay, energizing your conscience, correcting it, even healing it. Because uh, some of you that didn't grow up in the church or weren't saved from as a young person, uh, you lived in some pretty uh, not so good ways. Your conscience through all that was damaged. And uh, it takes the Holy Spirit to begin to heal it and to, to bring it back into conformity to the heart of God. Nonetheless, it's there. 
But those Gentiles who do not have the law in written form had it on their hearts. And so we see men like Confucius manifest it, uh, the truth of that in their writings. We see it in the, 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 the code of ethics from nation to nation, uh, governing their civil affairs and so forth. Man is a moral creature. Man is a moral creature. So this text of Jesus speaks to everyone, and it's been speaking to a lot of people for a long time. Interesting how God universally holds men to account, isn't it? It's very interesting. Let's, let's examine Jesus' instruction more closely. The first part of the sentence is essentially another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's proactive, considering others. It's the same way of saying, or different way of saying the same thing. We might restate it this way, love your neighbor in all the ways you already love yourself. Uh, of course, we're thinking of Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, some people think that the first time that this truth was presented was by Jesus in the Gospels, but that's not true. It does come from Leviticus. Jesus is quoting chapter 19, verse 18. It is the instruction, a summation of God's law, and then as you read through the prophets and their, their beef with rebellious Israel, uh, this is the essence of what they continue to bring up. You have not been treating your fellow Jew, you have not been treating your neighbors as you want to be treated. You have not been loving them as yourself. So this instruction from God is ancient, it's unchanging, and it's absolutely universal, absolutely. God has always expected us to treat others the way that we would like to be treated. And, and as we look at this closely, we must say, you know, love your neighbor in all the ways you love your, ourselves, because Jesus says, whatever you want men to do to you, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Now he doesn't say in whatever ways are convenient or whatever ways are comfortable, but in everything whatsoever it might be. So we must love our neighbor in how many ways? In all ways, not just in some. We must do to them and for them whatever we would want done to us. Because we, certainly, when seriously inconvenienced, under duress, in an emergency, subject to danger, would not want others to do for us whatever is convenient for them or whatever is comfortable for them, would we? We wouldn't. It's actually someone else's inconvenience or discomfort or want of safety that pulls on us to actually disregard and cast aside our own comforts and even our own safety. Isn't that true? When we see someone in a circumstance that is bad, we're willing to overlook our own safety, even our comforts. If you don't, then as Paul said, you have something seriously wrong with your conscience. It's beginning to be seared and uh, it no longer has any feeling. That's a dangerous place to be, I think, uh, uh, well, whatever the psychological terms are today, but the antisocial personality disorder, uh, those who are free of conscience, uh, they've done so much damage to it that they can really overlook anybody's plight. Not a safe person, mind you. But it's this tug on our hearts that should not be ignored. What we know intuitively when we look at people, we know, and then we have the instruction of God's word, 
and we must act on or for rather their benefit. We also have to emphasize the doing because Jesus says do. It's a call to action. So we cannot sufficiently fulfill our Christian duty if we simply express our concern for someone or lift them up in prayer when it's within our power to help them. It's interesting, whenever there's a national tragedy right now, uh, everybody sends out tweets and messages and it says our, our thoughts and hopes and prayers are with you. And then there's always snide remarks about right now it's really not your hopes, thoughts, and prayers that we need. It's your action. And in one sense, Jesus would definitely agree, wouldn't he? He would. I mean, we are called, of course, to show our concern. We're certainly commanded to be praying for people always, but that's not the instruction here. That's elsewhere. So those things come in an addition to this. James confronts the moral error of showing concern while doing nothing. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, hey, go in peace, I hope everything turns out okay, goodbye. That's what he's saying. The Apostle John, he addresses the same issue, he's just more long-winded, He says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. As John says, we must demonstrate our love by our deeds while we state our concerns, while we pray for them, but then we take these world's goods which are necessary for life and we we distribute them, we share them. Of course, you know, Jesus confronts this very thing in his parable of the Good Samaritan who alone, rather than the most religious people, was the true neighbor to the man who was ambushed robbed, and then left for dead. It's a compelling story. You know, the the road to Jericho is uh, filled with canyons and clefts and hiding places, and so uh, people typically traveled in caravan because it was so dangerous. You know, crooks can hide there, and uh, they can get in, they can get out without being detected by the authorities or tracked by them. And so this Samaritan, seeing this man in his condition, he stops and in one sense risks his life because the more you stand still, the more more odds of you being victimized as well. He goes out of his way to treat the man's wounds. He puts the man on his donkey, takes him to the nearest city, pays for him to be in this hostel, if you will, uh, that's like a hotel, um, and then gives the owner of the hostel, enough money to take care of this man. He's a good neighbor. He's a good neighbor. Of course, Jesus' point is that the Samaritan, who the Jews despise, is a better person (laughs) than the Jew, who 
very interesting. And then you remember the response, Jesus says, uh, you know, who uh, was the, neighbor, the good neighbor? And the Jewish scholar couldn't even get himself to say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed mercy. Interesting. Paul adds to this saying that, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works to meet urgent needs. These things are good and profitable to men. And he says that works such as these guard us from being unfruitful. That is bearing fruit unto God for his glory, for the benefit of humanity, Titus 3:14. So Jesus, James, John, Peter would say, enough talk, more action, more action. But should we do this blindly? Should we leap without looking in the helping of other people? Should we exercise no caution, apply no wisdom? We might say, are there no guidelines or parameters in doing for others what we would want them to do for us? Well, of course there are. Jesus always expects us to answer or to exercise wisdom and discernment when it comes to this kind of instruction. If we don't, uh, we're gonna get ourselves in a pickle, in a pickle. Let me explain. A friend of mine, uh, being compelled in his heart, as he should have been, he was by himself and foolishly offered a ride to a female stranger who offered, in return, sexual compensation. He declined and shared the gospel with her. Uh, he has since found better ways to share the gospel. Okay. He was compelled to do for this woman what he would want someone to do for him. But it was foolish, and he probably, definitely should have got someone else to help her. Maybe even if it required him to pay them, do something, okay? Now his story <clears throat> floods my mind when I see a woman walking down the street in a rainstorm. I feel compelled to stop, but if I'm alone, I'm gonna keep driving. If her life isn't in imminent danger, she's gonna get soaked and she's gonna live, right? Say amen. It's no fun to get caught in a rainstorm, but if you're gonna walk on the, in Washington, you're gonna get caught in a rainstorm and uh, you're responsible to be ready for that, okay? So if there's no imminent danger to life uh, or you know, bodily harm, um, I'm gonna keep driving. And if I was her, I would want someone to give me a ride, but if you're a woman, especially a stranger who was alone offering me a ride, I'm gonna get soaked because I ain't getting in that car with her, okay? And I think you know why. I think you know why. I'm gonna live. I've been wet before, and I don't like being wet. So caution and wisdom are essential. Let's look at a few more considerations. First, we don't wanna misread Jesus' words. He did not say that we should do to others or do for others what they want us to do for them. What if they want drugs? What if uh, they want a favor that is unethical? You gotta be careful, right? People don't always want for themselves things that are good or healthy. For example, if you do for your children only what they want you to do for them, you'll never train or discipline them. You'll never feed them a healthy meal. I mean, I wouldn't feed my kids a healthy meal. I'd be feeding them Frosted Flakes and, and uh, you know what I'm saying. You'll withhold what is necessary and you'll give them what is harmful like unsupervised access to the internet or social media. That would be irresponsible and that would actually violate uh, 
the instruction of Jesus. And so as Christians, we must be informed by the scriptures and we must do for other people what is godly. We must educate ourselves biblically, okay, and use some godly wisdom, maybe even get some counsel from someone else who has been in similar situations to give us the best course of action in regard to helping others. It also requires thoughtful consideration about a person and the circumstances they're in. You know, people need our love, our compassion, they need our help, our encouragement, but not the kind of help that would perpetuate or worsen their situation and make them a burden to us or others, or by our help, it would hinder them from glorifying God. If our helping someone perpetuates a lifestyle that is ungodly, and we've knowingly contributed, we bear some responsibility. Isn't that true? We're responsible for our actions, even especially when those actions influence others. For an illustration, you know, when it comes to the animal kingdom, uh, there are scientific and common sense reasons mingled with much experience why we should not feed certain kinds of wildlife. Uh, when people feed bears, raccoons, and other kinds of wild animals, those animals stop getting the diet that God intended for them in the place that God intended for them. And these animals can then feel entitled and get aggressive with people when they don't give them what they've been given in the past. So instead of returning to the wild for their food, instead of contributing to the ecosystem that God designed them for, they become a burden, a nuisance, and at times a danger to society. I have seen squirrels attack people because they're so used to being fed what is in people's hands that when they are not, they go for the hand and people get bit in the process. Uh, if you're kind of twisted like me, you would get a kick out of watching little wild monkeys attack tourists in Southeast Asia. <laughs> the monkeys feel entitled to people's food because no one obeys the signs that are posted everywhere. In fact, oftentimes in the videos that I love to watch, it's next to the sign that says, do not feed monkeys, they can be aggressive. Every one of you now is gonna go get on YouTube. And <laughs> there are consequences for our actions in this regard, but even more so when it comes to people, moral creatures created in the image of God who are responsible for representing him in this world, obeying his word. If helping someone encourages them to stop working when they are able to work, it will cultivate in them a dependence on you or society and they will fail to obey God who created them for work. Young people, listen. Work is not a byproduct of the fall. We don't work because we live in a sinful world. God created us for work in Genesis chapter one and two. The fall is in Genesis three. So we were created to work. It's a way that we reflect his image in the world, how we represent him. It's it's working, it, we're, we're called to work, we were created to work. If we help someone, or in our helping, we encourage them to stop working when they are able to work, they will fail to glorify God by not representing his dignity in the world as an image bearer, and they will fail to contribute to the commonwealth of their community, which God expects from man. I was walking the pier in San Clemente, California, and I saw this sign Please do not feed the birds. Feeding creates a dependent population that is a potential health hazard and makes a costly 
mess, a dependent population, a costly mess. It's funny how we can exercise so much common sense when it comes to wildlife, but be so ignorant when it comes to helping those who are created in the image of God. We help image bearers be reduced to that of an animal. It's, it's crazy. Let me repeat what I said earlier. People need our love, our compassion, our help, and our encouragement, but they do not need the kind of help that would perpetuate or worsen their situation and make them a burden to others, hindering them to bring glory to God. If they can work, they should work. Okay? Paul said that if anyone will not work, neither shall they eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So Paul is talking about those who can work but refuse. Paul commanded that food be withheld from them until they contribute by working. If we contribute to their obstinance, we will perpetuate, perpetuate rebellion and they will become an unnecessary financial burden to us which will then limit our ability to help others who actually need legitimate help. And then we ourselves will be found in violation of God's word. Paul's instruction in Thessalonians is not a suggestion, it is a command, it's a command. Scripture teaches us everywhere to help those who actually need help. When you help the wrong person, you can hurt them and you can hurt society. How many of you guys have read a book called When Helping Hurts? Some of you. I would encourage you to read it. It's actually about mission work, uh, but it's becoming more applicable uh, to Western society. It's called When Helping Hurts. It's a good book. We don't want to aid rebellion. We want to aid obedience. We should consider the question, in what other sphere would we ever justify helping someone disobey God? (laughs) Yeah. Jesus expects us to be instructed by his word and to conduct ourselves accordingly, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. He expects us to be wise and discerning when we consider what is the best way to help others. When writing to the Philippian church, Paul said this, and this I pray that your love may abound. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, people mean well when they help others. People are compelled, they're motivated by their love, by their concern for others, but when love is both the motivator and the one steering the ship, foolish things can happen. Shipwreck, a train wreck. You know, love, and this is the beauty about love, love generally takes action, but it doesn't always think when it acts. Love should be the motivator, but discernment and knowledge should be at the helm. You understand? I should be compelled by love. I should be motivated by love when it comes to other people. But I should be, as Paul prayed, I should be filled with wisdom and knowledge and I should be exercising it. Jesus expects that from us. Here's another example. We should not do for others what we want them to do for us if it makes us negligent of our primary responsibilities, especially if those responsibilities are moral in nature, okay? So I cannot neglect my responsibilities to my family to fulfill this instruction for others. So we might say that we should not keep this command every waking moment for every single person. We shouldn't, and we can't. 
If we do, we'll be overwhelmed and we'll do nothing well at all. Amen? How many of you guys have been spread too thin? Yeah. It's not just miserable for you, but it begins to be miserable for everyone else. Yeah. There's always a thing called delegation. Not every need should be filled by me or by you. Okay. Some needs need to come to the community of faith. We bear a collective responsibility. Someone else can help when we should not or when we're not able. But then I also know that people can use that as an excuse (laughs) for their responsibility to be intentional or sacrificial, but it's not an excuse. Jesus' command requires that we be inconvenienced at times. How many guys love to be inconvenienced? You just laugh. (laughs) He demands that we sacrifice our comfort at times. He calls us to be, you know, ever attentive to people to act when there is pain, when there's loss and difficulty, to come alongside them, offer our services, our encouragement, our counsel, even our rebuke. Is uh, a brother that's in sin, does he have needs? He does, he does. It may require something from our wallet. It may block out some of our calendar. It may get us dirty or uncomfortable. We might have to stick our neck out for someone. I love reading the prophets. Uh, The Old Testament, they're always saying, now is the time to plead the cause of the weak. Stand between them and the one who is trying to hurt them. Get in between people. Doesn't that appeal to you men especially? I hope so, yeah. We may not get to one of our projects at home when we wanted to, helping others, but we should be looking for opportunities to do for others what we would want them to do for us should not be looking for ways out, except in those rare occasions when they present themselves, as we've already talked about. To do, it's a call to action. Jesus then offers this closing comment about his instruction. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, This comment right here is what makes everything so important. So it's, it's worth evaluating. Uh, the law and the prophets, this was a, a tech, technical phrase that meant you know, everything in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, sometimes the Jews would say Moses, excuse me, and the prophets because Moses authored Genesis and the books of the law, Exodus through Deuteronomy. Jesus uses that phrase in Luke 24, 26. And then if they were to draw enough breath, uh, they would say the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms. That's employed in Luke 24, 44. Today, though, the Jews abbreviate all of the Old Testament with the the acronym Tanakh. You guys have heard that. It's just T and K. The T is for Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law, or, or it's actually better translated instruction. The N is for Navim, the Hebrew word for prophets, and the K is for Ketuvim. Uh, referring to the other, uh, the the remaining genres of scripture that are in the Old Testament, the history books, the wisdom, the poetry, the Psalms, and so forth. Strictly, always referring to Genesis through Malachi, nothing more, nothing less. What does Jesus mean when he says, for this is the law and the prophets? Well, if you were to provide an abbreviated statement that summed up all that the law demanded, and all that the, the, uh, the prophets communicated, as far as our responsibility to our fellow man is concerned, it would be this. 
That's it right there. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This statement is the bottom line. And therefore, if you were to apply this verse properly in your life, doing to others what you would have them do to you, you would actually satisfy all that God requires of you concerning your fellow man. We can also say this about the, uh, the, you know, the second commandment that Jesus talks about, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you were to take all of the love that you have for yourself and then bestow it on your neighbor, you would fulfill all the demands of the law in regard to your neighbor. You'd be nearly a perfect man. <laughs> That's a lot to demand because you've met some of my neighbors maybe. Not my immediate neighbors, mind you. Yeah. This statement on the screen is also an abbreviation of the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, which have to do, all of them, with our moral responsibility to others. Um, the first four, of course, record our responsibility to God. So just as a way to advance Jesus' point further, all we have to do is take one of the last six commandments and evaluate it according to Jesus' instruction. For example, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So, inserting Jesus' instruction as a question, would you want your neighbor to falsely accuse you in court and thus incriminate you? You can, it, you can talk back to me, it's interactive. No, did you need the Bible to tell you that? No, well neither should you falsely accuse your neighbor to incriminate him. Do not murder. Which of you wants your neighbor to murder you? <laughs> well don't murder your neighbor. Come on now. Here's one that could be more complicated. Honor your father and mother. Do you want your children to honor you as a parent? Yes, so make sure that you honor your parents and be honorable for the sake of your children. Amen? You shall not covet. Do you want your neighbor drooling over your wife? <laughs> no, so knock it off. <laughs> Do not steal and so forth. It's pretty simple. You get it. Our responsibility to our fellow man is summed up by Jesus is saying. It's the spirit of the law. It's reinforced throughout the Old Testament prophets. And according to Jesus, nothing has changed in this regard. Man has always been responsible to do this for his fellow man, to treat them as we want to be treated. And so finally, if you were a father, you would want your children to spoil you with a nice Father's Day dinner. So what should you do? It's the law and the prophets. <laughs> Why don't you stand up? We'll pray. I'll get you out of here. I expect a good report from the dads next week. Maybe a couple extra pounds. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, the beauty about this is you, you said this, you taught it, you demand it. And what we get to do for the next couple years in the Gospel of Matthew is look at you execute it, to be mindful of people, to watch them in their distress, to be sensitive to their needs, and then to meet those needs appropriately. So Lord, I just pray that by your instruction, by your example, that we would be motivated, that we would be intentional, that we could reproduce your word in our own lives for the sake of other people. So Lord, thank you. Lord, I thank you for all of the fathers in this room. Lord, I'm thankful because of all they've contributed to my experience. And um, I just pray that you would cause us fathers to be men who are 
fervent lovers of our God, men who love your word, as Isaiah says, that we would tremble before it, that we would live by its precepts, Lord, and that we would instruct our children and love our wives accordingly. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.